0: This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, tsleil and Kwikwetlem peoples.
1: British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, Seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, Watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend, To me you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend,
0: Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is February 3rd, 2022, and this is episode 275. I'm Start the Wonderboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we have an interview with BC Liberal leadership candidate Stan Sippos. As well, we dive into the leadership race that is coming to a dramatic conclusion as we speak. Then we go to the drama in Ottawa, where a protest ended the wrong person's job. Thank you to everyone who keeps this show going. We love your support. We love you. Join them and get our love by going to patreon.com slash First, though, we have to round up the greatest BC Premier bracket. Last week, we looked at the finals of the nonpartisans, and Cosmos has won. He was the greatest nonpartisan premier with 18 votes to robert bevan the guy who was premier in the legislature for a day and tried to give vancouver island away to its own monarchy only got 10 votes
2: Do we say um, more to carlos most is the greatest nonpartisan premier or just the one that has the the best branding
0: i think it's the latter he, i was gonna say like he went down in scandal pretty quick but that doesn't distinguish him particularly <laughs> well from most of the nonpartisans so it was a different era but this week we're going to switch to the other side of the bracket and look at the finals of the conservatives versus the Socreds it's the battle of the right wing Simon fraser Tolmie versus W.A.C. Bennett for a quick review you can for the longer review you can go back and look listen to our previous episodes but Simon fraser Tolmie was the last conservative premier this province saw he was premier from 1928 to 1933 he won 35 of 48 seats in the twenty-eight election, but he effectively ran the party into the ground so effectively that they refused to even run candidates in 1933. The Depression hit them hard, and he had no solution to it, and everyone hated him and his party. Even his party hated his party. I think he only won be- the previous rounds because people thought it was funny that he was the worst conservative. I guess he also didn't have time to do the racism that many of the other premiers of that era were doing. So that's Simon Fraser Tolme. The other is the top of the Socrates, W.A.C. Bennett, the premier from 1952 to 1972. His name's on half the things in this province. He has built under his administration. They built dams, highways, ferries. They brought in Medicare. A long legacy from this. I think this is an easy pick, but maybe Tolme is funnier to you, or maybe you really hate W.A.C. Bennett. Bennett finally did lose after running a tired and lackluster campaign in 1972, where he, you know, threw everything he could at the end with all the gaffes and claimed that the socialist hordes are at the gate. But he served for a long time, and maybe it was also a good time. Go to Politicospod on Twitter to vote in this week's contest. And with that, let's throw it over to our interview with Stan Sipos. Well, joining us now on Politicoast is Stan Sipos, candidate for the leadership race of the BC Liberal Party. Stan, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. And thank you, Ian and Scott. Uh, thanks for having me having me on and look forward to uh, having a discussion about this uh, situation.
0: Yeah, I know voting is happening right now as we speak, but we'll hopefully have this up Friday morning so people can get your views just in time to cast their ballots. But yeah, voting before we get into your
2: voting does run until five PM on the fifth, so should give uh, anyone who hasn't voted a good twenty four hours to get their vote
0: in. So let's start with a bit about you. Stan, who are you? What's your background? Why did you decide to throw your name into the leadership race?
1: I'm a businessman. I'm a longtime businessman in primarily in Victoria, but I have worked in we have done work in Toronto and south of the border. I've always been interested in in global affairs, governance, particularly governance of our province. I have experienced the ups and downs of what I would consider proper governance. So I, was, I, I really wasn't planning on entering this particular field and this run for the provincial leadership for the BC Liberal Party. However, after watching, just observing what's happening in our political uh, arena in the province at the present time, and the inequity between um, union and non union labor and the ability for how government works. Seeing some of the crises that are unfolding around us from affordable housing and health care, amongst and some others, I just uh, got concerned. And I, I was watching our liberal leadership candidates and watched the first two debates and was trying to talk to people to find out what they thought about these debates and discovered that unfortunately we were getting very poor. There was no coverage. No one even knew the race was on. No one knew who was running. You tell someone, and they say, "What are you talking about? There's a race going on." And uh, so, as I watched the first two debates, and as I was watching uh, horror, the the Globe, I keep getting the Global Mail on Saturday and watching the full-page ads being brought out about uh, old-growth forests being cut down. I know we had a paper that, in a study that was released for 2019 about forest preservation and best kind of practices for sustainable logging in our province. I was, I, I kind of got concerned about the direction of our province and how the whole thing was going. And I said, geez, I'm really surprised that Horrigan and the NDP, par- NDP party would actually be pro decimation of old growth forests and not implementing and doing things faster to follow sustainable logging. At the same time, our BC Liberal candidates were just getting no traction, and I said, I, I, "This, this doesn't look very good, and I don't think anything is going to change." When I listened to the debates, I felt that we needed a different direction. We needed to change how government works for the people. I felt that government was getting was extremely bureaucratic, too much red tape, too many excuses, and it's as if Most of the people who have been in politics, what they're doing is they're following a playbook. It's as if somebody gets a how-to be a politician. And so it's all about studying. It's all about talks and no action. And so I said, you know what? Not much traction. I'm going to give this a shot. I don't know what I'm getting myself into. I believe I, I can bring a different perspective to how government should work. I've been in business for myself for 40 years. Always worked for myself. Left home at a very young age. 16, $7.50 in my pocket and got a job as a construction laborer and um, did that for about 10 years. And then then I got into this direction of business. I always had ambition and dreams about doing more. And December, I, I put an application into the BC uh, Liberal Party and uh, to do this and was cleared on December the 7th. So not a lot of time. However, interestingly enough, we have been getting traction all across the province with our discussions and our, I guess, our agenda and the type of policies we would employ should we be fortunate enough to be uh, elected by the people.
2: So you're taking a fairly unconventional path, not first running as an MLA or having kind of a lot of deep ties to the party before going into this. Why go this route rather than, say, first running as an MLA or going in a direction that'll build yourself within the party and do that before running for leader
1: the party you know my honest opinion is the party is on an extinction path we have we are down to i don't know something like we were down to 40 some thousand members the numbers apparently increased to somewhere pushing 60 i understand the registered voters are like thirty thousand, several hundred to for this election that's all that registered so we've lost traction you guys do you guys cover politics no, south of the border and north of the border. I imagine you're probably engaged in all of that. I'm not. I'm not uh, 40 or 50. So my feeling was, true change can be. You have to be behind the wheel to make real change. So I'm not. I wouldn't be interested in being an MLA, being a politician that sits in that legislature doing nothing and just talking because they just talk. There's like it's a waste of time in my opinion, and I think you have to. I've always said, and I'm good at collaborating. I understand collaboration. I do a lot of collaborating with municipalities, community groups, community associations. And actually, in my whole career of doing this business, in all the rezonings I've done in many contentious writing, sort of communities and community associations and not in my backyard mentality, I have never lost a rezoning because I understand how to collaborate. I understand how to listen and to get the job done. So, I guess to answer that question, Scott, when you drive the car, you can drive it in a direction that is necessary. Yeah, go ahead. When you're a passenger on the bus, you're just there for the ride.
2: I do want to pick up on uh, something you said there about wanting to take action and not just talk. When the leadership race wraps up in a couple of days, it's going to be just a little under three years until the next election. The leader of the opposition doesn't have the power to implement a lot. So what is the plan for the next three years if talking, which is something politicians, as you said, to do quite a bit, if it's not going to be doing that, what is the next three-year action plan look like?
1: I believe you have to touch every part of this province and you have to listen. It's no different than all the things I've done in the past where you have to collaborate, you have to listen to different viewpoints. And you have to create a vision and an agenda that people will embrace. Youth is not embracing us. If you were to go through our party, and I've been listening to people and, and seeing who we talk to on Zoom and all those kinds of meetings, and unfortunately, it's primarily 55 plus. So it's like a dying breed, right? Youth are not engaged. We need to engage youth, and we need to understand what it is that the young people of this province are interested in and what is important to them. And what can we do to improve their abilities to pursue their own dreams and their own ambitions, the same as I have been able to enjoy in this country? So I think it's actually perfect. It's perfect for a person like me. If I had to jump in and jump into an election in three months or four months after winning the leadership, it would be you would kid yourself to think that you're going to be in there and you're going to be really sharp, smooth with everything, doing everything in the right way. But given three years, it's the perfect amount of time to get used to both legislation, how it works, how government works a little bit. But more than anything, it gives you the time to touch every community in this province and have discussions and get people on board to the vision of what a free enterprise government does and how it benefits the province in general.
0: So I'm curious a little bit about your backstory, or at least uh, the more recent-ish. Like, I'm curious... How much you've been involved in the BC Liberals, for example? Have, have you been a longtime party member? Is this just like the natural ideological fit for you? Like, why go for this rather than it's the available job? But I don't know. Now you could be federal conservative leader if you want, but...
1: Okay, I don't speak French. I okay. wish I could. Again, I think opportunity brings you to a certain place in life, both from your life experience, your education of times, circumstances that you get involved in, all those kinds of things. So I'm politic. I followed, I've been following elections and things my whole life. However, I, business, family, certain circumstances take you down a road where you don't pursue some of the things maybe you would pursue depending on your opportunity. Just to give you an idea, my, my, my son's first name is Jonathan. His middle name is Kennedy. So I wanted to put a little heat on him, so that he would, you know, strive for a little more. So he may he may be a candidate that will run federally, and and he may be uh, a guy that can be prime minister. That would be his choice. But I think it's just time. It was time brought me to this moment. Sometimes you life brings you to a moment where all your experiences into a into a cross section of opportunity, and and that is. Maybe there's a need. Maybe I can do something to just turn the tide or turn this ship in a direction that it starts, it does something really special and and then pass the baton on. I'm only here to do this because I believe service is important. I have been involved with the BC Liberal Party for a long time. I, I have supported, I supported Justin Trudeau when he ran for the election. I'm a little uncertain at the moment, but I love his inclusivity and I love how he is inclusive with women and, and how much he's provided opportunity for that type of direction. I supported Mulroney. I liked Harper. I'm probably conservative fiscally. I'm liberal in the middle. and I, I would call myself a, mid, a modern day conservative, liberal, green guy. So all three, that's just my, it's probably my era.
2: Re- really spanning that, to the coalition of, of the liberals mm, there.
1: Just- no socialism. None. We escaped from socialism. So when I was a little kid, my dad escaped from socialism, and me too. Refugee camp for, th- for several years, and then, you know, landed here when I was a little guy. So trust me, if socialism worked, they wouldn't have gone broke. And that's what happens when socialism takes root and goes too far. We don't do very well.
2: So... You've spoken about how the the party needs to reach out to younger voters, more diverse voters, and build in that inclusivity you were just talking about uh, that the federal Liberals have done. How do you see the path forward for that for the BC Liberals?
1: I think that the youth of today are very involved in the environment. I think they're very concerned about what is happening in the environment and how we are treating this planet. And so I'm not I can't say that we, that I as a person, that we recognize the damage that is caused uh, by industry and all these things. You'd think it was endless, but certainly in the last long, last 10, 15 years, there's been, there's no denying what's happening around us. So I feel that government needs to get involved in trying to do everything we can. British Columbia is a very progressive population. We need to do everything we can to create, my agenda would be to do everything I can To create a green industry in this province, an industry that is, through university, through education, that actually comes up with solutions by working with some of the world's brightest minds. the 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 premier has the ability to pick up the phone and call Bill Gates up and say, "Listen, we want, we need your help." You know, they're, they're contributing incredible amounts of money. I think he's doing a carbon sink. Carbon extraction type of idea out of Squamish that they're working on this thing, but these there's guys like like Gates, guys like uh, Musk. We need to t- the guy has the power to pick up the phone and say we need your help. We want to bring and we want to fund help fund things in our universities to come up with green solutions that we can export and show the world what's possible. We can, we're not going to stop our resource extraction. Obviously, it is too important to the economy of the province but we need to do it in a responsible way. And we should do everything we can to do it in a clean and sustainable way. And we should invest money in that, provide resources for education. In terms of youth, I'm gonna commit to doing student housing in all of our major universities so that when students go to school, they'll be able to get campus housing at reduced rates for the full four years. They've got the land, it's free. I understand what it takes to build intelligently, And and not so that people aren't, that we're not overpaying, but I believe it's sustainable. That housing is sustainable. That will immediately alleviate some pressure on market rental housing, because affordability is another issue that really is front and center with our youth, because why should they not have a dream of being able to have a home? And so there's a supply and, and demand bottleneck. There's a bottleneck in municipal approvals and how they go about it. The costs and the red tape and the bureaucracy in municipalities, and the de- the development cost charges that are sometimes completely outrageous in that's in the multi hundreds of thousands of dollars per unit, and the developer doesn't pay for that; it's the consumer that does. So, we need to be innovative with how we can assist people to get their home, so that they're not just lifers renting, or if they that they can never have the dream of owning a house. This country is way too prosperous for that. So, affordability, education. And many parts of the world, education is one of the most valued things that that the country has, like Norway and some of those other countries. Their teachers are like, it's hard to be a teacher, harder to be a teacher than it is to be a doctor because that is the foundation of where we can go, education and and opportunity. So that's how I think I would engage youth uh, by demonstrating what we would do to ensure that the environment is incredibly important that education is important, that affordability, uh, that they have opportunity to pursue their dreams. And then government should stay out of the way. It should just work on those services and step aside and let innovation and, you know, personal dreams
2: drive the car. Um, On housing, a bunch of places across North America and even around the world, such as New Zealand, have been... Looking at having senior governments step in where cities have been bottlenecks, is this something you would consider if you were premier, Mm -hmm. having the the province step in and take a more active role in land use decisions, permitting, and all of that?
1: Day one, immediately. So. Anything in major urban areas that is in the community, that, you know, in their official community plans that designates where the high density areas are, future high density areas, those areas immediately get rezoned. Just rezone them, bam, done. Maximum six months to, to do design panel, any variances, things like that, and get your building permit. That's it. We can't afford to sit there for years. And I have run into this, and it has gotten interestingly far more bureaucratic over the last 10 to 15 years. I don't know what's happened, but it is incredible how long it takes to get a project through any municipal government. Other than you could study, uh, Langford in Victoria is a municipality that has been winning all kinds of awards, and it doesn't take more than four to six months to get a rezoning through. They have playgrounds, they have bowling alleys, they have ice rinks, they have rugby pitches and all. It's just, they're investing in the community. Not only that, but they're providing doctors with free office space. So they have family doctors, very progressive and they just get the job done. They don't, there's none of this study after study and bureaucracy holding things down. So yeah, the government, in that case, government should be there to say, hang on a sec, this isn't working. Either you guys shape up or ship out. And we would day one, I would intervene on that immediately.
0: That's fascinating. You mentioned Langford. My partner actually grew up in Langford and it's a wildly different community now than the like little bedroom community. I haven't spent time there, but it has radically changed in the last 15, 20 years.
1: When have you last been there?
0: I think I've really just driven through. Well, you be, I didn't grow up good, there. but It's just worth my,
1: going in there because I don't drive through because, you know, Victoria is the kind of place you don't drive around looking at things all the time. But I'm telling you, when you go there, it shocks you. It's just shocking. And there's a neighborhood, Wood is right beside it, and like they're in the twilight zone. And you have, and I keep asking, I've asked many of our counselors, many of our mayors, and I said, do you guys not see what's going on in Langford? What, why can you not get it to, oh, no, that's Langford. We, we don't do it that way. That's just completely inappropriate. And I think it's a, it's a governance mistake.
0: We're... Talking about things on the island, I want to come back to one of the things you said right off the top of our interview about old growth logging was one of the things that really catalyzed you. And I find that fascinating because right now, the, I think the main position of the BC Liberal Party was to critique the approach the NDP is taking on old, protecting old growth and w- what they have done more from a why are we – shifting towards a more collaboration with Indigenous nations rather than the direction we're going versus it sounded like you wanted to see a faster moratorium on old growth logging, almost more in line with the radical protesters who are out there. I'm just curious to get your views a little bit more on these tensions between Indigenous groups who are on both sides of the issue, some who want to see more logging, some who don't, the environmental protesters the law, the industry groups, like how do we balance all of these tensions f- well, from a free market perspective?
1: Yeah, listen, I am for sustainable logging, but there is critically endangered old growth forests that we need that we can't afford to cut. So those ones you can't touch. The study, the two two thousand and nineteen study by by that was commissioned by both parties and has has been looked at, discuss how to go about logging an old growth forest that you can log in, and that is. They, their recommendation to ma- maintain the biodiversity and all those kinds of things—they go in there and do very select logging in old-growth forests, very select, so that you don't damage the biodiversity and everything else that is that it encompasses, from wildlife to to the health of that region. So, I anything that's critically endangered and that can't be touched, in my opinion, is off limits. This planet cannot afford. Massive destruction and clear cutting is not the answer. And big industry does. You think big industry really cares about the jobs or the people? They're just there to make a buck. They're loading those logs up as fast as they can cut them down because they get more money per tree. Put them on a bloody freighter, ship it over to Asia. There's no jobs created here. It's there's no value add. There's no nothing. So we need comprehensive and direct action, and we can't sit around and wait for it because I said Corrigan's saying, "Oh, I'm waiting for the First Nations to decide." In the meantime. They're cutting like crazy and logs are going out of there. And then I said to myself, what's going to happen next? When it's all said and done and the trees are gone, Horgan's going to say, geez, I wish the First Nations had decided much sooner to give us direction because then we would have stopped. So it's their fault we've cut down the old growth forest. So yes, there's a bit of job issue that is going back and forth with First Nations and their rights and and resource extraction. But from what I understand, all of the chiefs have provided, have have signed incentive uh, saying, They don't want to cut their old growth forest. They want to protect them. At least they want to understand how to do it correctly. But Horgan said, here's 30 days and tell us. So I think I love wild places. I got introduced to them a little late in my life, but but it's amazing how important and beautiful they are. And when we do clear cutting, as we have been doing all over the place, that clear cutting Devastates that biodiversity, and the recovery can take hundreds of years. So, for someone to say that we we can sell the carbon sink potential of those of the old-growth forests because they extract a lot more carbon, and big companies like BlackRock and all those guys will pay for it. But no one's going out and doing it. And I think that's where the difference comes in with a guy like me who's used to business, getting things done. There's a consequence if I don't do something. I pay the price. So I'm a different kind of guy because my whole life has been about consequence. I've got to get the job done or I may not be there. And so I think we need to consult. And I I don't believe that First Nations are willingly destroying old growth forests because that has not been their historic direction, I feel. It's just people are painting them in a corner and trying to use them as an excuse, in my opinion.
2: Uh, you sound pretty critical of fiat uh, exporting of raw logs there, but are yeah. also a pretty clear free marketer <laughs> guy. How do you square those two? And would you intervene more to have government intervention to support a domestic industry there for the logging we do do?
1: A hundred percent. So I, I don't know what – I think we, we're talking about 18,000 18, forestry jobs that they attribute to log cutting but that's probably truck drivers and all these other kinds of things. Most a lot of our mills have shut down. When I was a kid, you either people young guys worked in mills, uh, they worked in fishing, they did a little bit of mining and government. That was the kind of the key employers. But today, today we're losing opportunity to value add. And as you can see what's been happening in this last little while and, and there's a shift occurring in industry which is on supply on demand, right? Everything is being made somewhere else. Everything gets in a container and gets shipped, and what's happening, even in our food industry and everything else, we're running out of things. Why are we not doing everything we can to do value-add, made-in-B.C. solutions and employ people for the long term and just invest in that? Look, the government has hired plus 100,000 government workers in the last several years here at a cost of $8 billion a year surely we can go and help and create value-add industries to support people who will be affected by a little bit of reduction in old growth forests, but still maintain sustainable logging in. We have a lot of other trees that we can cut and utilize. It's just that they want the big ones because the big ones bring the most amount of profit and the easiest to extract and ship off.
0: I want to pivot and talk about a couple Just a couple more of the things on your platform, and maybe Scott has one or two other uh, policy ideas. Term limits is on your platform, and that's a really interesting one. This is one that like Andrew Weaver, I know from the Green Party has talked about, but otherwise politicians don't tend to talk about the idea of term limits in Canada too much. (laughs) Maybe you could talk to that a little bit. I'm really curious what you mean by a common sense rule that everyone agrees is needed. Is that just term limits in general is the common sense rule?
1: Yeah, I believe so. I believe that We're getting traction and a lot of people talking to us about that. Some people go into government and get involved in politics for a career and a job and pension for a long-term kind of thing. But government really, in my opinion, yes, the bureaucracy needs needs people that are executing certain kinds of things. But the politicians, in my opinion, should be there bring experience cuz it's one of the biggest uh, government is the biggest business in the province the amount of money that flows out the door and is utilized by government they do everything so when you have a politician who gets into government and he starts to be there beyond three terms it's like a little fiefdom who are, who who, are, who do they answer to do they really answer to the people do they really enjoy the power they have what are they doing do, do they is there any consequence of doing something and why are we in this situation at the present time with all these emergencies and things and lack of preparedness it's because they keep they're good at learning to point the finger at someone so I believe term limits you people would come in with ideas with execution and they know that they would be gone in a three three terms at the most 12 years 12 years in government and go get a real job that's what I'm getting feedback on in terms of municipal politics two two terms four year two four year terms because these people get in they create these little entrenched things and it's name recognition getting them reelected, and they create chaos they they just don't seem to understand some of the problems they create because there's no consequence because they're there they want to be there for life
2: so granted, those are reasonable concerns, but is there not also a concern that governing and being a politician is a skill and it takes time to develop a lot of skills to understand the nuances of the very complicated provincial municipal governments and how to manage those effectively and lead those effectively. Is they're not concerned that with high turnovers caused by term limits that you would lose those skills? And is there maybe other ways we could prevent the issues you raise without that specific trade-off?
1: Scott, I don't think we can. And let's understand something. When you look at corporations and companies, for the most part, or management, head, management heads of different departments in big companies, CEOs, 12 years for a CEO is a long time. Very seldom do you see a CEO there for 20 years. It's management. But the guys who really are doing the heavy lifting and the work are the deputy ministers and the staff underneath the deputy ministers in those various ministries. So I believe that when you are elected to, when you are, when you put your name forward and you get elected by the people to serve in government, you are a manager and a person with consequence to get things moving. That's your job. You're like a guy that steps in on a department, has discussions, has, you review it with your department and say, how can we be efficient? This is what we need to do. And we just got to, I'm here to get the job done. And those, the deputy ministers and the staff through the ministry are the ones that actually do the heavy lifting. It's the guy that's that's the minister of highways or the minister of transport of housing. They're just there to be uh, <clears throat> like a CEO at the boardroom table and, and provide direction and to, to find efficiencies and to make sure that they're doing it in the right way.
0: I'm cognizant of the time. So I think I'll just ask one more question. There's been a lot of Or, at least, some drama towards the end of this BC Liberal leadership race with a lot of allegations going around sale of membership. Are there invalid membership members? Is everyone playing fairly and by the rules? And it seems like a lot of this is zeroing in on Kevin Falcon specifically, and like almost an effort by everyone but him to try to keep him from winning. For example, I think I saw. Renee Merrifield endorsed Ellis Ross and Val and Ellis Ross and uh, Michael Lee as alternate choices. What's your perspective on how the race has gone, and who's your second choice? I
1: think so. We've got a couple of things going on. I guess we you may not may or may not be aware there was a, a challenge brought forward by one of the BC Liberal membership to to the Supreme Court to try to involve more oversight of the of how new members were signed up this must be a i'm a novice in this political thing and i wouldn't myself i wouldn't i wouldn't be looking to to i would focus on if i was doing it i wouldn't there's no way i would be unethically signing up people so i can't tell you that they have or they haven't or who's doing what but it gets very competitive and power is very alluring for all of them. So all of them, that everyone that gets excited, whether it's Michael Lee, who's, who really wants this job, Kevin really wants this job, Ellis, I don't believe as much. He's more of a, diff, he's a different kind of a guy, Merrifield, Litwin, Gavin, really nice. I would think that, the, that what I hear as the front runners would be Falcon, Ellis and Lee fading, and upset in theory, thinking that's what I—that's what I'm hearing as in the rumor mill. So <clears throat> I don't know. I have a little problem about this concept about being important and seeking power for the sake of being premier. I, I, it means nothing to me. I, I, I seek no fame. I seek no privilege. I seek no pension. I just am there to make a difference. But that's just me. And some—I think it's a little bit of that is taken over. And so who would, buy, who would my choice be here if I had, if I was, I don't know them very well, any of them. I'm sure Falcon would probably do a reasonable job. I think Lee would do a reasonable job. Ellis would probably do a good job. He's, those are all the elected guys. The question I have is, would they be politicians or would they actually really bring change? And both, both Falcon and Lee have been there for a long time. Even Lee's now in the second term. They've done nothing like I've never even heard of any of their protests complaints anything now all of a sudden they're all change makers when they get in there will they change I don't know so if I was saying who I think says it pretty straight I think Alice says it quite straight he seems to be like a very straight talker you'd have to like his sort of brand of politics of who he is and I can't answer that question really well because I don't know him well enough so you'd have to understand is he is he a is he a strong lefty is he a strong righty what's his in internal makeup. I've not been around long enough that I can tell you that I've sat down and had lunch and talked about philosophy, life, political direction. So I think the politicians really want to be leaders uh, because they love the power. I think it's it's that kind of important thing, get to the top of the mountain, put your crown on your head and be there forever. They don't like term limits. They probably disagree on my concept of term limits because they love their jobs. Uh, Free lunch, free lunch is good, but in my business, there's no free lunch.
2: Okay, you've been uh, very generous for your time and what I'm uh, sure is a busy final few days of the campaign. So I will just uh, end by asking you if anyone's interested in finding out more, where can they
1: go? The people would like to see us, I think they need to go to stanseapost.vote, Vote. We have our policies on there. I think it gives you a reasonable overview of who I am, what we stand for and and what we're trying to do. So lastly, it's not, I'm not looking for a job, I'm not looking for a pension and I certainly am not doing this to be important or to seek fame. I uh, only one area in my life that I would appreciate if I got any fame and I've managed to achieve that and I'm satisfied in that department in my life. So if we get if people have uh, if people give us their trust and if people give us their vote, I think they will be pleasantly surprised about the positive change that will come to this province for all British Columbians because I'm not into partisan politics. We need a broad coalition and we need to work for every citizen in this province, irregardless of party color. And that is what I'm here to do.
0: All right. Thank you so much for chatting with us tonight, Stan.
1: Pleasure. You guys have a great night. Thanks for inviting me on your show.
0: Best of luck. All right.
1: we're now in the uh,
2: final days of the BC liberal leadership campaign, the campaign that has seemed to have lasted forever, but it is technically under a year as the party constitution requires. And Andrew Wilkinson was gracious. And I'm not sure if that's the right word to, to stick around after he resigned, but not really to, to put it into 2022 and, as of 5 p.m. on Saturday, the, the voting will be closed, and we should have a winner announced that night. Ian, what are your thoughts on the general state of the, uh, the leadership race that we have witnessed over the last 12 months or so?
0: We may get to experience more of it if Vikram Bajwa has his way. This is the liberal member who... Sipos alluded to in his comments, who has launched a lawsuit against the party, alleging the membership processes were so corrupt that the courts need to intervene and put off the vote, delay the leadership results until the court can audit the membership. What a mess. We did look into the filings, thanks to friends in the patron slack, you can go find the filings there from people who paid the $12 to get the fee to get the documents. The lawyer on the file is Greg Allen, who I've actually worked with in the past, or at least I've worked with one of his partners. So I'm not going to say a fringe firm, it is a downtown Vancouver law firm. Interesting, we haven't had a chance to really dig through the filings, but they really just try to focus in on the concerns that have been raised by a number of the campaigns and just argue that this has not been uh, robust or transparent enough to be valid. I think it's unlikely it will go anywhere. It seems like in the past courts have been very reticent to weigh into how political parties work, which is in a way interesting because courts will look at how many other elements of our society work, nonprofit associations, societies, even voluntary associations and agreements can be interrogated by the courts in certain circumstances. And given the fundamental nature of political parties to our democracy, they get a lot of leeway to act however they want.
2: Yeah. The flip side of that, though, is that because they are kind of fundamental to our democracy and an important part of it any decision related to them is an inherently political one most of the time and courts are very reticent to uh be political if they don't have to be
0: so that will be heard tomorrow friday sometime around when this is coming out maybe the injunction will come out i don't expect it will but look for that news on twitter or in our slack as to your actual question scott how has the race gone it's been unnoticeable would be the best word to describe it
2: yeah it uh, feels that way
0: people, we, we people obviously, post in the slack oh there's a leadership debate tonight and everyone's like, oh yeah we, that's still happening
2: you mean i've posted in the slack hey there's a leadership debate and one or two other people are like yeah that's happening it is not something that, yeah, I think even our patrons who are definitely at one end of the bell curve in terms of political engagement and following the news, even they, I don't think, would being the most engaged with this or following it too closely. And I think that speaks to the both the trouble the BC Liberals are in and the uh, lackluster nature of both the uh, candidates and the debates within the party or lack thereof part of their... The BC Liberal Party undoubtedly needs to go through a lot of rebuilding, and while there's been a lot of vague talk about that by a bunch of the candidates, there was no real big debate about the future of the BC Liberal Party at all in this. No kind of competing visions for where it's going to go for the most part, and as a result they're just... It just has not been interesting, not been particularly engaging, and the actual rebuilding work that very much needs to be done hasn't really happened. So in that sense, I think it's just a pretty big wasted opportunity.
0: Like the race had a number of impediments to it going well. It's COVID still, so there haven't none of the candidates were able to have massive rallies or big events. They went for the long campaign, as you remarked on, and that I think makes it just less exciting. I'm not saying they should have gone in six weeks like a federal election or a provincial election, but three months. having it within two or three months yeah, would actually force some effort for things to move faster and to get some momentum going. The party has been suffering. Like The fourth quarter 2021 f- fundraising results just came out, and these don't include numbers raised by the individual candidates but I don't see any evidence that any of them are raking in large amounts of money but the BC Liberals posted $647,000 in that quarter to the NDP's 1.4 million so the party raised half what the government did the Greens raised 460,000 so the Liberals are more like the BC Greens in terms of fundraising right now than they are like a government in waiting which is not a good sign And the NDP raised more than their opposition combined. This is a weird state of affairs for this party, province. But it might be the new normal in which the party, like you say, it needs to grow with the times and adapt to the situation. And what we have is seven different people saying, here's how I would listen to what we need to do. But no one actually saying anything different.
2: Yeah, so... Yeah. So we haven't had much polling on the race so far. I did hear kind of secondhand where one part, one campaign's internal polling was that generally put kind of Falcon low 30s, Ross mid 20s, and the rest scattered in the-, the teens to single digits. And got sense that's probably right. But that was a couple months ago and it's hard to tell if anything has shifted much at all assuming that's roughly correct i think that does not bode well for falcon because he has been the the front runner through all of this and at this point if it's a year into it every falcon's the clear front runner he has been the whole time the uh, i don't know, call it 65 percent that aren't putting him on the the first ballot that probably is a sign that they are They've made the decision that Falcon's not the person to lead the party, which means it's pretty unlikely he's going to pop in at the number two of a lot of those people. And as a result, I think it's going to be hard for him to catch up through the the second and third runoffs. The only complicating factor to be that it is a uh, riding-weighted system, so every riding's worth a 100 points, and that can rearrange the rankings a bit. We were looking through the, the last BC Liberal results, and yeah, there's a fairly sizable gap between the points for Andrew Wilkinson on the first round and the percentage of the, the total vote. And it would not surprising something similar happens here again, where there's some interesting riding or regional effects going on that
0: skew things a bit. It's really hard to figure out, like you say, Who's leading? I was just looking at the Facebook ad library to see who's been running ads since November, because that's just where it's easiest to report. Ellis Ross has been post spent ten thousand dollars on Facebook ads. He is his page has eleven thousand likes. He's followed by Michael Lee, who has spent sixty five hundred dollars and he's got thirty nine hundred likes. Val Litwin has spent twenty nine hundred dollars. Kevin Falcons spent a measly 1300 not even. Uh, Renee Merrifield, 643 and Gavin Dew has spent 41 and I don't think Stan Seapost has a Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs> or if he does, he hasn't run ads or registered as a advertiser. That just tells you where they're spending, and there are many different places to spend to try to reach BC Liberal members, but it does show Michael Lee doing better than I expected, in terms of having some money to spend there, but yeah, oh, um, and it doesn't mean anything.
2: I, yeah, I, I wouldn't read a huge amount into it. The some of the people he has working on his campaign tend to, to lean pretty heavy into the, the digital video, digital advertising thing. So I, it, it could just be a reflection of kind of the campaign team he's put together and what they're focusing on more than i think what's
0: more interesting has been how some of the candidates have been positioning themselves in the past week we saw renee merrifield put out a damning thread where she basically said kevin falcon she didn't name him specifically i don't think would be awful for the party or at least one candidate would be awful for the party and then she endorsed at the end for people to put Ellis Ross as their second choice and Michael Lee as their third. Val Litwin in his own Twitter thread said he would quit the party if Kevin Falcon wins. And then he had a follow up thread today, just reiterating that the BC liberals need to move forward and not backwards. Meanwhile, Kevin Falcon has are, just are they disappeared also and twirling towards freedom. Possibly Kevin Falcon just disappeared and bailed on a CBC interview this morning, which is a way to get your message to no one. I guess if you're the front runner and you think you're struggling, just shut up is is always a strategy.
2: It is a strategy. It's one that I think is somewhat notable in that Aaron O'Toole employed that in the final days of the last campaign he ran. and I don't think that necessarily served him well and I don't think this is probably gonna serve Falcon very well, but uh, also I think at this point views on Falcon are probably pretty baked in.
0: Either way, doesn't you never know in in the election things might have gone worse for Aaron O'Toole if he had kept showing up to interviews. Who knows? (laughs) We'll get to Aaron O'Toole soon enough. But yeah, this really does look like a anyone but Falcon kind of situation. Lining up, and Falcon's going to need to be in the forty percent on first ballot to or better to win this. Like you said, it's going to be hard for him to find those second choices. But really uninspiring is the yeah uh, theme of the day.
2: i probably gonna go cast my vote after we get off recording here. But I admittedly still have no idea really how it's gonna shake out, and I th- I think that doesn't necessarily... I kind of I think broadly reflective of where a lot of people probably are on this. I don't know. It's, a, it's just been disappointing. I was really hoping that we would see more fresh ideas come in and really distinct visions for what the BC Liberals or whatever the BC Liberals want to rebrand themselves as, which kind of weird. That issue just disappeared, and if anything, we got less conversation about the future of the party as it went on rather than more but yeah we just don't have i think a clear sense of anyone that's really stood out as going to be a very effective and viable candidate in the general election. No nobody jumps out as okay they're obviously the electability candidate on here. I guess Ross gets the ideal the you know most ideological of the group in there, but I don't know. The the problem with the BC liberals is not that they've been insufficiently ideological. So it's just all left in a bit of a vague, slightly muddled mess. And I know whoever it is, I hope they end up being more effective as a leader of the opposition and a party leader than, uh, they necessarily were as a leadership candidate because there needs to be a lot of work done here and it's not super healthy for a democracy when there aren't viable effective and competitive opposition parties and the trend of the BC liberals have been to move away from that and there hasn't really been the soul searching that's needed to happen and I don't know if I'm reading the tea leaves here. I think it probably won't happen until after the next election when they'll likely lose again. (laughs) Because this is a party that is not being able to connect with voters in Metro Vancouver very effectively or with younger voters at all. And that absolutely needs to change. But there just isn't the signs that's actually going to happen at all and part of it and part of that i think is that for the last two elections there's been a rationalization on why the party doesn't really fundamentally need to change in 2017 it it was effectively a tie popular vote was within what a percentage point of each other there's a very Actually, the B.C. liberals had the plurality of the seats, and it was just the after-election effects that that they lost power from. Okay, we only just need to sweep in a, a few hundred to a thousand more votes in a couple ridings, and we can be back in power. That obviously didn't happen, and part of the flaw in that is it's fundamentally different running for re-election than as an opposition party. You are now the new potentially frightening change, and not the well-understood status quo. <sighs> nevertheless, 2020—oh, it's a COVID election. The BC Liberals were riding, or the BC NDP were riding high on the handling of the pandemic, which admittedly I think they get a little too much credit for. But nevertheless, that was very much the the public mood at the time, and oh, it was a pandemic election. The leaders a bit stiff and a little out of touch and we can get a more charismatic leader and someone who's just slightly more in touch people we should be all good and it's not super clear that that's going to be the outcome of this and
0: they're not getting more charisma i guess they, they you could get more charisma more than
2: andrew cut. can say that is not a hard bar to cross and they're for the flo- for the flaws of the candidates on stage many of them cross that threshold fair yeah But the broader point is that election was also kind of rationalized away as why they lost. And yeah, I think they're structurally, it was going to be a very hard election for a party at the top of its game to win, coming as an opposition party at that point. Nevertheless, they lost more than they needed to on that one, and that ought to have caused uh, a significant freak out that the, the Fraser Valley strongholds fell, but reading where things are right now, it seems like that has faded away a bit. And the, well, it was a pandemic election has taken hold as the dominant internal way to view that. And all of this is to say that the party needs to do some serious rebuilding and, Nobody seems to be wanting to actually go out of their way to do it uh, beyond just saying it needs to be done.
0: Let's put a pin in this conversation. We'll hopefully be able to come back to you this weekend with our fast reactions to whoever does win it all. Or maybe we'll be talking tomorrow about how the race is delayed for an indefinite amount of time because the courts have intervened. Unlikely. but I want to move our attention to Ottawa. I know the pieces fit because I watched them fail away mildewed and smoldering fundamental differing. Do you know what that's from Scott? No I don't That's from the song Schism by the band Tool which I think is appropriate because we are saying goodbye to Aaron O'Toole his leadership ended quite unceremoniously this week yeah. At the
2: start of the week we got uh news bubbling out of Ottawa that enough MPs in Caucus had signed the letter triggering the reformat vote, the Conservatives being, I believe, the only party caucus that actually voted to enact the various provisions. But basically this allows the Caucus to kick a leader out of their position. That went to a secret ballot on the Day of the caucus meeting on Wednesday. When all was said and done, 73 MPs voted to replace Aaron O'Toole. Well, 45 wanted to keep him in as leader.
0: That's brutal. So the initial reports were like they have the 35 votes or whatever it takes signatures to trigger this. That didn't look great, but I think there was some hope for his leadership. then we got a series of stories i think mostly leaked from o'toole and his team saying things like oh this is all just mps bitter about how the conversion therapy debates went down and how they felt like they got thrown under the bus because they don't understand how parliamentary procedure works i guess and
2: that evening o'toole came out with a social media statement basically uh Blasting the attempt to get him out as a move to the to turn the party into the party of Derek Sloan and all that
0: real and the NDP of the right, which I'm which, still curious. About, I, I, I can s- I can
2: see the uh, the framing there and how that came together. Basically, the argument being that the the NDP of the right is a party more concerned about feeling good about its ideological positions than being effective at win in elections and run in right. the country the
0: ndp is the conscience of the parliament so it's the little angel on your one shoulder and some people want the conservatives to be the little devil on your other shoulder
2: they'd view it that I'm way being,
0: i'm being crass now yeah um if any yeah but to come Sorry, go. back to it o'toole also put out another one or i don't think it was him specifically necessarily but saying that he suggested to caucus that if you didn't he would be open to revisiting party policies if it would bring MPs on side, the, triggering the famous. I have principles, and if you don't like them, I have others. Which is more at home in the Liberal Party, to be honest. But Well, the, the
2: argument of the anti-O'Toole faction was that he was turning the Conservative Party into the Liberal-like party, so maybe something there.
0: Nothing worked, though, and maybe it really just undermined him further. 73 MPs going against you. There you have it. Right away, they had to pick a new interim leader. They chose Candace Bergen, someone who had spoken favorably of the truck protest convoy, the freedom convoy in Ottawa, and who has previously been seen as more on the socially conservative right wing of the party, which I think suggests possibly another flex by that wing, just to show that they can pick an interim leader. Apologies or condolences go out to John Williamson, who tweeted out and had a press release go out that he was running for the interim leader position, touting his experience being on the draft Stephen Harper campaign in two thousand one. <laughs> it, so it was weird. Yeah,
2: so, so, the weirdest thing about this is the uh, the interim leader, and I believe, yeah, I believe all the interim leader and the. O'Toole departing more or less coincided roughly around the same time. It seems weird to try and do the flats in public on that rather than in the caucus meeting room. And yeah, just when it didn't work, it just looked silly.
0: He could at least take it off his website now. Looking ahead, we have another leadership race to cover, I guess. Uh, Everyone is expecting Pierre Polyev to... Enter and win it, uh, but we could see another a bunch of other familiar and less familiar names. I've already seen bandied about, and some of these come from the province where they have a few conservative sources speaking to them. The big ones being Leslin Lewis, Marilyn Gladu didn't rule it out in one article. Peter McKay is allegedly making some phone calls. Jean Charest is allegedly getting some phone calls. Patrick Brown is possibly interested that would be weird he's he got kicked out of being the ontario progressive conservative leader for being creepy he managed to revive himself or Re- revive his career as brampton mayor
2: but yeah and gathers been reasonably well liked and effective in his position in local politics but yeah it's a. Uh- Yeah, I I did not necessarily expect him to land on his feet politically after that one, but he seems to have done so. Nevertheless, going to uh, leader of the federal opposition is probably a pretty big step for someone with that past.
0: It wouldn't surprise me if he stays put. Peter McKay is interesting because I was looking to see what he's been up to. I don't remember if we mentioned it on the pod, but a few weeks ago there was an article about how Stephen Harper is calling for conservatives to help him pay off his leadership debt from the last race. McKay also had an article out just yesterday talking about the need for an international anti-corruption court that could be based in Canada, which is, like, not a bad—it's just a weird idea. I'm not against it, but it was weird.
2: Yeah, it's a little odd. I'm going to guess Peter McKay probably doesn't uh, sit this one out after the somewhat embarrassing... Or, sorry. I'm going to guess that Peter McKay probably sits this one out after the somewhat embarrassing way the the last one went. Plus, he still has some leadership debts from the the last one. (sighs) Jean Charest is somewhat interesting, but... (sighs) As has been pointed out a few times on Twitter, the the last person who made the jump from premier to prime minister was, was it Charles Tupper? Not exactly a common path or one that's been particularly successful for politicians. The same probably goes for, I think Ken Bosenthal was out there want, talking about how he'd like to see Christy Clark run for this, which, as far as I know, Christy Clark is a federal liberal, so probably not going to be something she's interested in at all. One name I do hope does uh, run and he has avoided the last couple leadership races with a a young family is James Moore, uh, former cabinet minister in the Harper government, local here to BC, I believe he's from Port Moody. He's uh, fairly level-headed, pragmatic, not particularly ideological conservative, who... uh, Frankly, I think the party could use right about now, and I don't know. I'm hoping he at least throws his hat in the ring on this one because someone from that window of the party needs to be present and represent them.
0: So I'm sure we'll have lots of time to dig in and see how this goes. Like very initially, it feels like the race is really shaping up around this idea that O'Toole ran as True Blue conservative, sold that out, and now the social conservatives, the populist right, the we need to be true to the conservative ideology, whatever that is today, is, is bitter and wants their representation. And Pierre Polyev seems eager to play to that. Leslie Lewis is going to play to that hard, and she has a more prominent position from which to, argue for the leadership as an elected mp now rather than just not an mp as she was before i don't think she'll win because i think she is quite outside the realm of most canadians in terms of her social views but polyev has been clearly thirsting for this for quite a while
2: yeah he's the presumptive front runner at this point he didn't run last time because he had a a young family i think he just first kid had just been born or was something like one or two at that time but sounds like the rumblings are he's more likely to, to step in this one I would not be thrilled at the prospect of him running the Conservative Party he is very effective at getting under the liberal skin as the attack dog but people don't want the attack dog to be Prime Minister and I don't necessarily know if he has a second setting besides that. And at, at the the Conservatives have spent basically six years actually longer than that now. When was Trudeau given or when did Trudeau become leader? It was twenty thirteen? They've basically spent the better part of a decade just ripping on Trudeau nonstop and Turns out the rest of the country doesn't hate Trudeau as much as the Conservative Party core does, and that's not being an effective message, and there's no indication that it's going to be any more effective if it is said in a slightly louder, slightly angrier voice than before.
0: I guess the big challenge for the Conservative Party right now are things like this abacus poll that came out, which showed that among all Canadians 32% say they have a lot in common with the protesters in Ottawa which is and how they see things
2: higher than I would have guessed
0: same but it's those numbers are really skewed by the partisan divide where 46% of conservatives are sympathetic like 82% of people's party voters are I'm shocked it's not higher there I guess 18% of people's party members are really still into supply management getting abolished.
2: Yeah. The biggest shock in this is not the 18% of people's party voters who don't like the protest. It's the 57% that of the green party that is. And that is that was honestly the most shocking part of that poll.
0: I might be willing to chalk that up to uh statistical noise Small that sample they probably size, only talked to yeah exactly they probably only talked to three green members people who said they would vote green, because there aren't that many these days, you look at the other parties, and you still have a quarter of liberals, 23% of NDP and 19% of Bloc Québécois voters sympathetic to the protesters vision. And that's not enough to create problems in those parties. But it does suggest views on the pandemic are shifting in this country. And within the Conservative Party, where it's divided down the middle, which way to go I don't know how you balance that, and that's why I led off with the lyric from Schism, because it seems to define exactly what is happening in the Conservative Party. This is what a friend of the podcast, Stuart Prest, has been writing about and posting about a few Twitter threads, is that one of the dividing lines in Canadian politics right now goes right through the heart of the Conservative Party. Set
2: many of the dividing lines, and (sighs) it it was always going to be hard for a conservative party to to come to a unified position on everything around COVID, but it still doesn't mean there hasn't been uh, they they haven't had a tougher time than they need to on that. It isn't causing them a lot of problems and I don't know, maybe the Nets leader doesn't necessarily have to deal with that as much because the the trends are moving in the way of a less interventionist public policy on this. Anyway, the the final thought I'll have on this, and obviously we could spend another hour just talking about everything that's been messed up with the convoy and, and that whole mess there, is that, but on that side, the, the big problem, I think, about I think the right has in general, and this goes for both the, the liberals who we were PC ta- liberals that we we're talking about before and the conservatives, is that they need to do some pretty serious work on figuring out exactly what they stand for and updating their views to match the modern times. The last time this was done in any big way was the 1980s, more or less. And the the doctrines that emerged from that are were very much targeted towards the issues of their time, and well, forty years has passed since then, and that's no longer lo- uh, that's no longer aligning well with the, the current issues. And I think far too many of them have made the mistake of thinking the of having the policy prescriptions from that era, which were based on. Conservative principles; those have overtaken the principles themselves as the guiding light, and it would be good for them to go back to first principles and apply that in a more open and uninhibited way to the problems of the current times. But I don't know if the BC Liberal leadership race has been any indication. There is not a huge amount of interest among the uh, the politicians, at the very least, on that. So yeah, I don't know. It's it's going to be interesting to see where it goes, and there's, I think, bigger problems afoot than just who's going to be the public face of conservative politics going forward.
0: The winning strategy, and I say this just as a joke not to start a debate, for conservatives in America, the UK, even Toronto and Ontario to some point, is to just Pick the biggest buffoon you can find to lead your party and wait for your opposition to defeat itself.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure that's necessarily the path we want to be going down on there. It's not
0: good for society.
2: No, not at all. Uh, Yeah, there there are some real tensions between Canadian conservatism, and I I don't even think you can call it conservatism. The U.S. right uh, on where they are, but that is also a conversation for another time, and... I don't know, maybe we'll set aside a slot on a future podcast to really dive into this, but for now I think we've probably had this podcast go on long enough. And that has been PlayCoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playcoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com/slash PlayCoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playcoast is a production of Legend Boot Media and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo Wash your hands and stay home Thanks for listening